All right. Well, I'm back with uh, Liz and Caitlin and Alan, and we're going to talk about the science of criticism. But first, Alan's got the Secret Service. Secret Service and the now apparently secret text messages that were exchanged between Secret Service uh, members on January 6th. Can you turn up the volume a little, Alan? Oh, sorry. Just I think it'll be good. How am I sounding now? Oh, that's loud. If you could just sort of in between those two, it would be best, but this is better. Okay. Ah, how about now? That's good. Carry oh, on. Should we restart the recording since we just Why would we do it? that for? <laughs> <laughs> production values. Oh. Do we do we look like we care about production values? I'm with Caitlin. <laughs> just carry on. Good All movie. five of our listeners. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So the Secret Service. Um, text messages uh, have been requested by the House investigative panel that's looking into January 6, because it seems pretty obvious that the Secret Service text messages would illuminate just what happened on that day. But lo and behold, those messages have been magically deleted by the agency, and only a few days after the request was made. So how on earth did this happen? Well, there's an article that broke the story. Um, it's been a couple of, or over a week now, Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept, which is perhaps not the most reputable of news sources. Nevertheless, uh, he broke the story and it is quite telling. Now, all of the news outlets in the US have picked up on the story. Um, and so this is not breaking news now, but, um, most of the stories have focused on, you know, more, more of the political horse trading or some of the more legalistic aspects of this request. What hasn't been picked up so much is um, the Secret Service's role in trying to take then Vice President uh, Mike Pence away from the Capitol which has not been quite so saliently reported. And um, apparently on January 6, when the rioters slash insurrectionists breached the Capitol building, the Secret Service went up to Pence and tried to get him into a car so that they could take him to a quote unquote secure location, which might on the face of it seem like a good idea because then the vice president's safe. However, if that had happened, then he could not have been on site in the Capitol building to have certified the results of the presidential election, meaning that the, the whole country would be thrown into, um, well, a very uncertain state in which the presidential election was supposed to be certified, but could not be. And so um, Pence actually told the Secret Service agents, quote, I'm not getting in the car because he knew very clearly what the consequences of this would be. Now, it seems that there's at least some reason to suspect that some Secret Service agents were actually acting not in the interests of Mike Pence's safety, but they were in fact uh, in cahoots with President Trump and they were trying to abet this uh, insurrection or potentially a coup. Um, and in fact, um, 
Pence's, uh, or rather uh, the, um, um, uh, one, of, one of the secret service agents by the name of uh, Tony Ornato, who was also the deputy White House chief of staff, um, tried to talk to Keith Kellogg, who was one of uh, Pence's uh, national security advisors and tried to talk Kellogg into agreeing into getting Pence to relocate to a uh, um, uh, Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. And Kellogg said no to that. But Kellogg was concerned that um, they would fly Pence out of the base, out of the state and potentially to Alaska if they had a chance. This is what he said in the quote. So at any rate, there's a lot more to the story than seems to be getting uh, published in the uh, mainstream news these days. And that really does illustrate just how precariously close we came to a full on coup on January 6. Yeah, I've been following this too. And I think uh, in one sense, it's very understandable if the president and vice president are in conflict, then how is the secret service supposed to know who's the boss and who to obey? Uh, and, uh, also, another thing I've heard from someone who covered the Secret Service a lot is that um, they often ignore requests for data and, and cover up and delays data to cover it up. And traditionally, they're text messages because they're doing things like flirting and having affairs over text messages. And they're accustomed to just deleting that to cover it up. And they say they have a tradition of ignoring the rules because they're never held to account. And it doesn't sound like they're going to be held to account this time either. Probably not. It does not sound like the most uh, professional of operations. After all, oh, Secret far, Service far. agents keep getting busted for doing very illegal things, especially on, on trips abroad. Well, and, and apparently they completely failed to protect Obama on many occasions. There was guys with guns and knives being let in the White House and stuff like that. So they, they don't seem to have been doing their job in any good way at all for at least 10 or 15 years. No. And they in this case, they might have been acting more like um, Trump's Praetorian Guard. Well, yeah, well, you know, I'm not even sure I fault them for that. I mean, if the president is nuts, but you are the Secret Service, it's really your duty to do what the president says, isn't it? I, I'm not sure I completely fault them for that. But well, it's other branches, other branches of government have shown more guts and integrity. So, well, I don't yeah, think but that excuses the, the Secret Service, Service kind of is the Praetorian Guard. They're there to protect the president. <laughs> Well, you do have a point there, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I can see like the Army and the Navy saying they have other priorities, but the Secret Service has like no other priority than taking her to the president, really. Anyway. I mean, it's it's frustrating because, you know, I always sort of viewed government service, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved and the mission always comes first. And, you know, sometimes you have to sort of make sure that you get the work done first and then worry about the consequences later. But, you know, at any given time, you're like, okay, I know I'm, maybe this isn't the best way to do it. But if, you know, I went to a judge, I could explain what I'm doing, you know, and keep on the up and up. The fact that there are people who want to like hide what they're doing, they know what they're doing is wrong. They're hiding it. They're deleting the evidence. I mean, that's not, that's not, you know, mission first mentality. That's, that's corruption. Well, in a way, it is mission first mentality. And there's a huge problem here, a conflict of interest, for example, both police and 
the Secret Service, are supposed to take a bullet to protect their comrade. So why would you balk at lying to protect your comrade? Isn't that just cowardice and failing to stick up for the team and stuff? That's why you see this uh, the same issue in both cases. It's, uh, it's a fundamental conflict of interest to expect them to unhesitatingly choose to betray their own comrades in the interest of some higher principle like the truth. But you should be able to justify your actions regardless, even, even, if you, even if you break the rules, you should be able to justify your actions saying, you know, this was an emergency. I had to act, you know, quickly. I didn't have to go through the proper channels, et cetera. You do something quote unquote wrong, but you know, you can justify it. If you can't justify it, then you're corrupt, period. Well, I, I remember when I used to think that way decades ago. I think it's more complicated than that now because I'm like old and bitter. Anyway, um, all right. Well, anyway, let's go on to you. You've got Huawei. Again, Huawei. Huawei's in the news, as usual, uh, doing their usual Huawei stuff. So let me see if I can't make this a little bigger. There we go. Okay, so the Register has an article written by Brandon Vigliaro, Vigliaro Lo. I, okay, that's a tongue full right there. Talking about Huawei being under investigation again, just because they have their technology and wireless surveillance technology all around U.S. missile silos, <laughs> you know, just because of that. So what's going on? So um, the FCC commission, commissioner, um, Brendan Carr, uh, is basically per, uh, said that um, the cellular towers around, um, what is it, um, more Montana's Malmstrom, Malmstrom Air Force Base uh, uses has a bunch of Huawei equipment around it. And that Air Force Base also contains a lot of our important missile, missile silos, as well as other important military operations. And of course, it's, it's surrounded by cellular towers um, that, you know, the soldiers and, every, and the Air Force people who work there all connect to. And those cell phone towers, of course, running Huawei equipment, which then sends the data straight back to China. Um, and this is, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's a problem. How, how did this happen? I thought Trump put in a Huawei ban. Yeah, Trump did put in a Huawei ban in 2019. And, uh, you know, we're still trying to get, get the Huawei stuff out. I mean, this was put in before 2019. Ah, that makes sense. Um, and the people that run the cell phone company in Montana, now keep, keep in mind, Montana is sparsely populated. They don't have a ton of resources to just upend their cellular network at the FCC's whim. Uh, they're refusing to get rid of the towers unless the FCC pays for it 100%. But wait, does it really send data to China in normal business operation? Or is it just right, they're afraid it might? Because your typical router doesn't send data back to some home base. No, and it doesn't seem real practical for right. cell phone towers in Montana to be able to transmit data to China without any other infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, it, um, so yeah, I mean, that, and that's the thing. The article does not specify that there's any active um, evidence that data is being exfiltrated. Right. They just, just think- that it, Just that it could be. Yeah. Just they could be. So like there's ZTE and Huawei, and we know from their history that they do have a history of putting, uh, you know, being able to track data from their devices. Uh, so the U.S. government just said no more Huawei, no more ZTE. 
Uh, like I said, there's no evidence in this article. Doesn't mean it's definitely not happening. Doesn't mean it is happening, but it is a possibility. And it is very concerning that their technology is all around U.S. missile silos. Yeah, so they're just trying to be more secure against supply chain attacks, which we're seeing everywhere. They want software bill of materials for things and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, and just Huawei and ZTE out of the equation, which is great yeah. for American manufacturers. Um, you know, we need we need more uh, chip makers and and hardware being made over here. Yeah. All right. And I've got an article which is uh, psychology and management kind of, but I thought it was very good in the Financial Times about positive feedback. I was very pleased to read this article. It is much better than any of these self-help articles I've read because it goes through what I consider the whole story, which goes through, at, at first, they bosses that just harshly criticize their underlings. You did this wrong. And they discovered, amazingly enough, that this doesn't really help. Most people panic and say, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired and this is terrible. And they don't have a good reaction. So they don't actually learn from that. And then they talk about a whole bunch of psychology and management researchers that had studies showing it's much better to organize feedback. So you ask, how could I improve this? And you get answers. And they summarize it. They say there's someone who has uh, his reaction when criticized is first, fuck you. And then I'm terrible. And then, okay, well, let me try listening. And they said, everybody goes through these stages. First, you punch back. Then you feel terrible. Then you have to get over both of those and say, all right, let's hear it and find out how I can fix this problem. And But the anyway, what I thought was very interesting, about halfway through the article, it sounded like a typical self-help thing where they have a procedure where you ask for feedback and take feedback and make sure to calm down and not have an instant reaction of defense, which all sounds good. And they called one of the researchers that invented this. He said, oh yeah, I abandoned all that. I never give feedback anymore. And he said, you know, I found out that all that stuff is just not that helpful anyway, it, because it's far more complicated than that. When you're talking to people, I certainly find this when talking to students, I had to learn this. Students are very different. Some of them are very on edge about things. They have very strong emotional preconceptions about things. And you just don't know. You cannot guess how they will respond to a criticism or something. So the best thing is to just not do it. He said, it turns out most of the time, you're just gonna make trouble Unless you are close friends with somebody, you do not know how to phrase something in a way that will actually help them. And I've always felt like that's better. I mean, I, I always felt like um, sort of, I think from the Buddhist stuff I read, that if you are doing something wrong, you are experiencing the negative consequences of that all day long. You're getting slapped in the face with the consequences of your bad behavior, and you're ignoring it. Me telling you is not going to change that. You, you have to figure out for yourself, if you decide that you want to improve yourself, then you will discover feedback all around you. <laughs> anyway, that's, I, I was very pleased to see a nice, nice portrayal of many experts in the field going through the various sides of this. And I think people go through various stages of this. Anyway, I thought it was quite useful things to think about for managing people and teaching and pretty much anything. Anyway, um, then Liz has got the data caps. Shockingly, uh, this is some good news. Uh, so pretty interesting too. Uh, two senators are proposing, uh, uh, they're proposing a, a, a bill that would prohibit, uh, as they call it, prohibit predatory data caps that force families to pay high costs and unnecessary fees for access to high-speed broadband 
which uh, is pretty awesome. And I thought one of the things I thought was pretty interesting about this is uh, in its definition of uh, data caps, the bill also includes throttling. So essentially, uh, they they are calling calling these data caps out for what they are, which are essentially a uh, mechanism to increase uh, customers' bills um, and, and and goad them into uh, either paying uh, sometimes unbelievably high uh, overage fees and other times to uh, goad them into subscribing to the. Uh, plan with the steepest uh, ongoing fees because, uh, um, and, and, it, and it's interesting because, you know, several, it's come out several times within the past few years that these data caps are entirely unnecessary to maintain, uh, you know, to manage network load and um, maintain quality of service and, and, and things like that. So, uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but I, I'm really rooting for it. I, I'd love to see it go somewhere because uh, especially now with the way that, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of um, educational programs that are online only and folks are still working from homes. COVID's still raging, raging on. Um, and it's really it's really something that disproportionately affects folks who are on the wrong side of the digital divide, as we say, um, folks who are, are who may be low income, uh, you know, lack access to uh, infrastructure, or um, you know, even they may live in a place where there are no other options. And I this has happened to me multiple times no other options for connection except for uh, cellular data. So um, it, it'd be great to see this go through. Um, let's, fingers crossed. <laughs> well, you certainly make a good defense for it. I mean, I would like to think that we could have a free market with options and competition, and then you could have data caps and charge you monthly fees for your heated seats in your car and everything else, and there would be sure. an alternative product. But if there isn't an alternative, <laughs> Then you kind of have to go down this uh, nationalist socialist yeah. path where the government limits how much abuse the company can give you. Well, and, you know, we kind of I, I agree, but we kind of saw how that went with deregulating utilities and yeah. what what it what it has led to. I mean, at least in the place where I live in California is there are no options. You get one choice for everything and you're at their mercy. So they just just jack the prices up whenever they want to, however much they want to. All these companies are just making record-breaking profits right now uh, through abusing the customers who have, have no other alternative. Yeah, yeah, well. On the face of it, on the face of it, it's freedom-loving capitalism, but in, in, pra in, in, in actual practice, it feels sort of... <laughs> Feel, feels a little different than that. <laughs> well, you know, the, the free market can only solve solution, cause solutions if there is competition. Right. Yeah. And the, 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 invisible, the, whole thing. Yeah. the invisible hand is still uh, dialing a rotary phone. Apparently so. <laughs> All right. And so back to Alan. Alan has monkeypox. Well, I've, fortunately, I'm not infected with monkeypox and hope to never be. But Apparently, uh, it's no fun at all. Uh, apparently, it's quite miserable. Uh, it is seldom lethal, 
but it is certainly unsightly and it's very uncomfortable. And it is now spreading. There is community spread of monkeypox. It's certainly in the Bay Area and in San Francisco. And in fact, uh, vaccines are being administered at uh, San Francisco General Hospital and people are lining up out the door and down the block just to get vaccinated, which is a good thing to see. Um, it's not often it seems that people are enthusiastic about getting vaccinated these days, but some people are in San Francisco for monkeypox and that is a great thing. Well, there's an article in the Scientific American about um, that summarizes a recent study on monkeypox and how monkeypox seems to be evolving very rapidly. It is not a newly identified virus. It's been around for quite a while. It's been known to exist for at least 50 years. Uh, and there have been past outbreaks, in fact, but most of those outbreaks have been quite uh, small and they've been confined to just smaller areas, um, uh, mostly in Nigeria. However, yeah, according to the study, something's happened to the virus. A, a switch has been flipped, so to speak, and now it is evolving much more rapidly than it did in the past. And this is peculiar because the pox viruses in general do not uh, mutate very quickly. They are a slow mutating virus because they are a DNA virus rather than an RNA virus. And uh, um, the uh, COVID uh, being a prime example of an RNA virus that is capable of mutating very quickly. DNA viruses like monkeypox uh, just mutate much more slowly, and which is a good thing because that's why we were able to uh, eliminate uh, smallpox, for example, because it evolved too slowly uh, and uh, the, vi the vaccine for it was able to be administered to everybody on earth and the whole uh, virus was stamped out. That's probably not going to happen with monkeypox at the rate things are going because it's evolving too quickly. And the reasons for this are unknown, but it is something to watch. I initially was very skeptical about the hype about monkeypox because I thought it was just uh, media sensationalism, shall we say. But there is community spread. And unfortunately, there was a narrative pushed early on that it really only affects gay men, um, and which is problematic for many reasons, including the embedded homophobia in that. But the fact of the matter is that anybody can get it. It does not require sexual contact. Just skin-to-skin -skin contact is sufficient. Um, and it can be, according to earlier research, it can be highly infectious. So there is, there is some suggestion that it could spread very rapidly, especially among children, which is already happening in the UK. So it's something to be uh, more vigilant about, shall we say, and uh, is deserving of more attention than it's probably gotten, aside from the sensationalistic news headlines. Yeah, I'm very surprised to hear about a rapidly mutating DNA-based virus. I remember my father explaining this to me around the age of six, how RNA viruses are different than DNA viruses, and it sounded like a very strong argument. Yeah, and, you know, we've been lucky in that uh, some of the worst viruses that have afflicted humanity uh, have not mutated that quickly. 
they are on the slower mutating side of things. And so uh, we've been able to develop very effective vaccines. And I, unfortunately, our luck is running out these days. Yeah, you know, because I mean, DNA has, goes through a process of error correction, which is why humans don't mutate so fast. Anything based on DNA has a very small number of mutations. Anyway, apparently not, not this case. All right, and so Caitlin has got flying taxis. Yeah, so this has been something I've been interested in ever since I was uh, over at NASA. Uh, I noticed a bunch of our test equipment was looking at similar type devices. I, I probably can't go into details about what we were working on, but I thought that these things are so ridiculous, they'll never come to market. And yet here we are. So let's take a look. The Insider has an article uh, written by Stephen Jones and Taylor Raines uh, 14 hours ago, uh, talking about American Airlines and how they ordered 250 electric flying taxis. I don't know how this is going to work. Um, I assume they they are completely autonomous. Um, at least that is, if I remember correctly, what 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 they were working on at uh, at NASA. And um, I don't know how this is going to work because we already have essentially flying taxi ferries. They're called helicopters, <laughs> and they make a lot of noise. And if they want to be automated, I mean, there's so much things you can go, you have to go through. Now, I, I was thinking, like, if you did have to automate air travel, um, taxis would probably be the way to go because you could have set routes, like a route from, say, uh, central Los Angeles to, say, outer Riverside or something where you just get, if you need to go that route, you can get into your flying taxi, go 200 miles per hour to your destination, land is the same route back and forth, back and forth. Um, so you just get pre-clearance from the uh, FAA. You go, I don't know if that's the case. I was just thinking if, you know, if I were setting that up, I would imagine that is what would have to happen. Anyway, this article has pictures of these electric flying taxis. Um, so let's take a look. So they're essentially quadcopters. And let me zoom in a little bit more. And I know my face is a little bit in the way, uh, but these are essentially quadcopters. Um, in fact, let me get rid of my face. Oh, wrong one. There we go. Okay. Uh, so these are essentially quadcopters uh, and you get in and they're gonna take off and then land somewhere. Um, let's see. Uh, this is a artist portrayal of these taxis. Uh, this is another one of the aero taxis. <laughs> um, looks much more like an airplane. It's the flying cars we've been promised all these years. Apparently, I mean, but they're they're rotary, so they're essentially drones, and they're essentially helicopters. So they're going to be very loud. Um, now, I do imagine they are going to be fully automated. Uh, so there's not once once they buy these drones, other than maintenance, it's going to be basically a profit generating device. Uh, you know, you don't have someone, you, you just make sure it's well-maintained and it takes off and lands. Um, although I will say anytime you take off and land in a uh, helicopter or any, or airplane, you have to do a full inspection of the vehicle. So I don't know how they main, how they're going to maintain a profit. If every time the taxi lands, they have to have a crew come out and do a full inspection of the vehicle before it takes off again. But you know, who knows? Also, you know, the other the other thing is, you know, making sure that no one takes uh, unauthorized control of it and crashes it into the side of a mountain. 
Right. I mean, I imagine they're not going to be remote controlled. They're just going to have like an internal GPS that says take off from here. Although they must be able to have some sort of remote access in case there's like it needs to emergency lander or something. So I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, here's an image again. Another image of the uh, air taxi. Apparently you can only see like just a few people. It's very large and like I said, it's just a quadcopter. There are the rotors. Um, now it looks like these. this is a full VTOL type uh, air taxi. So it looks like the rotors can in fact um, swivel and go from full vertical to uh, a horizontal acceleration. And it folds up apparently, which is nice. It really I mean, looks straight out of James Bond. It it does. Oh, and and actually, yeah, it very much has that futuristic. The car seats are facing each other because you have no need for a driver, um, which we we've seen prototyped for a while. I bet it would cost an awful lot of money to get a ride in one of these. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that yeah. Like I said, there's the cost of the vehicle. These are all electric, by the way. So they have, they're also, and you can see the charging port here. Uh, they're fully electric. They have a ton of computing computing systems on it to make sure it doesn't crash and can fly itself. Uh, they're obviously, you know, hugely expensive aerospace products, probably millions of dollars per uh, per vehicle. They can only sit apparently it looks like four people at a time. Um, so unless municipalities want to get on board. Um, and make this part of public transit. Yeah, this is going to be for very wealthy people, I imagine, at first. You know, you can deal with the noise by having counter-rotating dual propellers. That's how the military does it. I imagine these are also counter-rotating. Uh, every drone I've ever seen still has counter-rotating uh, propellers. However, that only reduces the noise a, a, a bit. I mean, it, it, it's still going to make a huge amount of whir, whirring noise from the from the motors. So okay, I've heard that they have very very quiet stealth helicopters, but they're probably very expensive. I I doubt these are, are stealth, um, especially when they're taking off at landing. Um, we'll we'll yeah. see how this works. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully, they'll be safer than Teslas. All right. And anyway, I heard another thing I was very interested to see. Um, there's a um, Alzheimer's. You may have heard in Alzheimer's, there's a very expensive drug that is supposed to cure Alzheimer's. And it turns out it doesn't work very well and it got approved anyway. And it turns out the entire field has been misdirected for about 20 years by fabricated research, which I was very interested in seeing because uh, the same thing happened in cancer research under David Baltimore 20 years earlier when I was doing medical research. And uh, a similar thing happened on my own postdoc when our lab was working on a project for two years based on a um, famous milestone study until I finally tried to reproduce the original study and it wouldn't reproduce. And I said, everything is just fake here. Oh, that one was, I think, an honest mistake, but these were totally fake. And it's exactly like the David Baltimore cancer thing that happened 20 years ago. A famous researcher winning all the prizes had an, a brilliant student who found these amazing effects and published a whole series of papers discovering proof what everyone had always suspected, that these amyloid plaques that appear in the brain are what causes Alzheimer, and they found a particular protein that causes it, and it turns out it was all fake. They were just copying and pasting images 
these images uh, using some technique uh, called making blotch. It looks like a chromatograph image to me with lines in it. And they were copying and pasting lines from other images and creating fake results that made it look like they had isolated this protein and that it was having the effect. And there's a group of scientists. This sounds like a fun thing to do. I might do this. There's a group of scientists who are sort of given no respect, who go through other people's published papers and look for evidence of fraud and publish it on like an expose uh, muckraker website. And so they found these images and said, I can tell these images have been manipulated by analyzing them, that this part's been copied from that part, and found out this has been going on for like 15 years. And just like with the David Baltimore cancer stuff, the um, articles are beginning to be retracted and uh, the main people involved are trying to deny all wrongdoing and only very reluctantly admitting anything. Uh, the people are all still involved in science, still publishing stuff. And the entire field for like 20 years has been wasting their time going the wrong direction based on fraudulent research. This has happened several times. And uh, anyway, it is important to know. And it's another thing about if you look at the um, mega types that say, uh, we don't trust your vaccine, we don't trust your science. This is, of course, unfortunately kind of the case science is kind of a mess a good bit of it is fraud a good bit of it is wrong uh it's not at all as cut and dried as they would like to say when they say oh no shut up and take your vaccine it's science you can trust it and they say well it's not really that clear um so anyway it's um it's very interesting reading i used to be in this kind of work and uh that's the problem this is what I, another reason why people often get mad at me. Um, the right-wing zealots are not 100% wrong. They kind of have a point that you can't trust these so-called authoritative figures too far. Anyway, um, then Liz has got GPS trackers. Yeah, this is kind of a wild story uh, that uh, came out for in the uh, register this week. Um, regarding um, uh, a, a CISA warning about um, uh, about uh, GPS trackers. The um, MV720 GPS tracker, which is manufactured by uh, Mycotis, uh, can, uh, and, and they're typically used in like fleet vehicles, like say, um, uh, you know, um, electrician vans or, or pack package distribution vans or, or things like that. And, uh, they, they typically use these to track where the vehicles are and how fast they're going. And, um, you know, are they, are they where they're supposed to be on their route at their assigned time? And, or, you know, or are they, you know, sitting in the parking lot of a donut shop or something. And um, it, what's interesting about the, really interesting about this is that uh, these trackers contain some security fault flaws uh, that not only can they grant a, a malicious uh, threat actor uh, access to location uh, routes for the vehicle, um, and things like that. Uh, they can also do things like disarm the burglar alarm. But the, the scariest one is it actually, uh, there is a fuel cutoff command, I, I assume, so that the owner of the fleet vehicle could uh, remotely disable it in case it got stolen or something. But uh, an attacker can actually abuse that to uh, 
send the fuel cutoff command uh, whenever they want to, which is pretty dangerous. Yeah, so, this is the one where they had just a default password or something awful like that, right? Yeah, and um, according to this article uh, in the register, uh, uh, about 1.5 million consumers and organizations use those GPS trackers across 169 countries, including government agencies, military, law enforcement, aerospace, energy, engineering, manufacturing, and shipping companies. So that could be pretty disruptive. And can you even update them or do you have to replace them? Uh, did it even say in here? Um, you, typically you can't update the firmware in these things, but uh, uh, nope, it just says disable them until a fix is made available. That's why I thought the manufacturer hasn't even responded yet, I think. Nope, uh, they didn't even uh, they didn't even notify their customers. This came out through a CISA advisory bulletin. So this is why, you know, I have sympathy with the supply chain people that say we need to have like a software build materials. We need to actually deal with reputable companies who will do things. Yeah. Like patch and update their stuff. Well, or, you know, maybe not ship with a default default password of one, two, three, four, five, six, which is well, what these did. Yeah, that would and be I, nice. And I'm sure there's no simple and easy way to change the default. And you, we know most end users aren't even going to bother. Yeah. All right. And so that brings us to Alan with Jargon. Yes, I came across this really interesting Chrome extension called Jargon, and it purports to translate Jargon into sensical, readable text. And I had to try it out. And uh, well, here are the results. I'll just read them to you. Um, first, I just found a random paper published on pubmed.gov. And I won't read off the title of the paper. I'll just read the first sentence. Mitochondrial DNA, mtDNA, escaping stressed mitochondria provokes inflammation via CGAS STING pathway activation. And when oxidized, OX, mtDNA, it binds cytosolic NLRP3, thereby triggering inflammasome activation. You know, I think I saw that and I totally wanted to see what this would do because I couldn't understand a word of it, but it was apparently important. <laughs> well, here's what jargon came up for me. Uh, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, sometimes dump a piece of their DNA into the rest of the cell, which can cause inflammation and that DNA gets oxidized, has an extra oxygen on it, and then binds to a part of the cell that causes inflammasomes to activate. Well, that's very good. Yeah. If, it, if, it's, uh, if it's right, it's certainly much easier to understand, but I can't say whether it's right. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the problem, is that uh, not being much of a cell biologist or immunologist myself, I can't really assess the accuracy, but it does make a lot more sense. It, unfortunately, um, jargon does not translate inflammasomes, but it does for much of the rest of the sentence. So I thought I'd, I'd try then a sentence that's a little closer to home from the Wikipedia article on TLS. Um, I picked a sentence that's not too crazy, it's more straightforward. 
the server responds with a server hello message containing the chosen protocol version, a random number, cipher suite, and compression method from the choices offered by the client. So to a layperson, that's going to make absolutely zero sense whatsoever. And jargon translates that as the web server, a computer that serves web pages to users, sends a message back with the protocol version it will use, a number known as a nonce chosen randomly by itself, a list of ways it can scramble secret information called a cipher suite or a key exchange algorithm, and a method it can use to make data smaller so it uses less bandwidth called a compression cipher. That sounds very good. Yeah, it's not bad at all. And so um, I've tried a few different uh, sentences and phrases and the, the results are mixed. They're not always as good as these. Uh, and I should also say that if you just change a few words in the source text, sometimes the translation output will be wildly different. Uh, and then for that matter, sometimes if you just redo the jargon translation, you'll get a different translation with exactly the same input. So, which can be a good feature actually, because if the first translation doesn't make sense, you can try again and possibly get a better one. Um, but it does seem to have some promise. However, I haven't read the full uh, output from jargon from this uh, uh, in regards to this TLS uh, sentence. So let me finish what it says here. And this is where jargon gets weird. So after uh, finishing with called a compression cipher period, it goes on. Scientific American has criticized jargon for being confusing and sometimes unnecessary. It recommends replacing jargon with longer but less incomprehensible sentences. Jargon has been part of the English language for centuries, but in the 20th century, it became especially common in science, technology, and business. I'm not sure how it got that translation from an article about TLS, but it's a very meta moment for the jargon extension. And uh, I thought it was quite a fitting one for it. Yeah, I mean, I must, I must say education, in my experience, and government is the worst. Uh, I think every day people tweet something full of acronyms I don't know. And when I go to the source material, it just has more repetitions of the same acronyms I don't know. Right, or people, the acronyms are acronyms. Yeah. Are of acronyms. That's yeah, so I have no idea what they're talking now. about. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe jargon is going to be your solution to that problem. Maybe. It certainly is a real problem. All right. Hey, and Caitlin has the robot dog. Yeah, this thing's awesome. I love this. <laughs> so uh, Vice has an article talking about this awesome thing from Russia, of course. Uh, oh. So this is an article written by Matthew Galt. Um, so a video was put up on Twitter about this dog, robot dog, and there's not a Boston Dynamics dog, by the way. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, let's take a bit. Let's take a look at the uh, video, and I'm going to just put my headphones up to the microphone so you can hear. This is awesome.
Oh, look at the cute little murder machine. Yeah, I can't hear the bullets, but it's great. What the amazing yes. thing to me is that it is so, it's like a toddler shooting that thing. It doesn't have enough weight to hold it steady. Yeah, that's why I wanted to show the video because it, um, uh, the the dog, I mean, it, it does have a big old <laughs> rifle on his back, but it, 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 it definitely can move around with it, but it's not heavy enough to um you know keep itself steady from the recoil so of course my first thought was i where do i get one <laughs> and, I've, and it's not a boston dynamics dog it is you can get these dogs off aliexpress for three thousand dollars about um they come with the machine gun it does not come with the machine gun that's separate uh but this is the this is the the dog that they used <laughs> um the robot dog, and like I said, it's three thousand dollars plus another, you know, few thousand dollars for the machine for the machine gun. So that's the dog is only about half the price of the whole setup. So you know, it um, seems like fundamental um, mechanical engineering failure to put the machine gun on top. You need to move it towards the center of mass so it won't tilt up when it kicks. Right. Yeah. You get rid of the the bottom part, or you you know maybe add two to the, to the side instead and make it lower on the yeah. on the robot dog. Yeah. Um, definitely. I, you know, we could, there are definitely improvements to be made or, or even here's my idea. So the bullets create a lot of recoil and that's bad. Why not instead of a rifle, we put a bunch of lasers on the back of the robot. That would be awesome. Well, you know, I saw a, a laser drilling machine that totally yes. works that way. Yeah, so exactly. they really do have lasers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We could put giant uh, overpowered lasers and just burn our enemies um, yeah. to the ground. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, like I said, this is of course from Russia. <laughs> How else would this be? Um, and uh, let's see, Huawei, I think, is mentioned in this article. Um, you know, I bet if you sold that over here, there would be lawsuits or something. Some sore head would give you trouble. Um. Yeah. So, but yeah, Boston Dynamics. Uh, the, this is not a Boston Dynamics dog. Um, uh, and the nor the. And so normally, and Boston Dynamics would not sell these to the government because of the bad PR. And that's is what everyone thought that these robot dogs were going to be doing. Turns out they were right. They were right. Anyway, the robot uprising is soon to be upon us. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the, I, oh, go on. the military's had these for a while. They used them yeah. 10 years ago in Iraq. They even have autonomous ones, but they tried to use them several times. But uh, at least as of 10 years ago, every time they tried it, it would shoot the wrong people. Right. Well, I, for one... Welcome our new robot overlords. <laughs> there you go. All right. It would be a fun new mode for your Tesla to like clear obstacles. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> there was a game called Car Wars long ago based on this. You drive around and start shooting people that are in your way. Anyway, um, so there's an interesting article I found about quantum computing in the register um, saying that the number of problems that quantum computing can actually solve is really quite small. And that is probably true, but he referenced some other articles that explain quantum computing. And one of them is a um, Saturday morning breakfast cereal cartoon where a mother explains quantum computing to her child, which is really very good because the uh, cartoonist, Zach Greenersmith, got a Scott Aronson, a real expert in the field, to collaborate with him. And another article from him explaining quantum computing in a very good way. And especially his article explained the quantum Fourier transform, which I never understood his article called sure I'll do it. Um, which is really very nice explaining how you, um, Rick solve the factorization problem at the heart of RSA.
by creating a series of um, of polynomials that will only resonate correctly. And this is the point that takes me to think I'm kind of right in my general explanation to my students. A quantum computer is a hardware computer like a violin or a flute where you feed in random noise, but only certain waves are reinforced and survive. And the ones you don't want die out. So you have to design the circuit so it will resonate for the solution. And then you feed in the, the data and it, it settles down into that position. Anyway, um, very nice articles. Uh, as we quantum computers are here, they're getting better and better. They're still not accomplishing much of anything, although in some very edge cases, they're better than classical computers for some extremely strange problems that aren't worth solving. But, you know, within 10 or 20 years, we're going to have quantum computers that really do something awesome. And uh, the computer science and physics of learning how to build them and what they're good for is proceeding right along. Anyway, and then Liz has got solar winds. Liz does not have solar winds. Liz has died and vanished. Well, Liz she, has vanished. She has vanished. She is uh, off to save the world she, in another meeting. I thought she, oh, that was it. I thought maybe her internet died again. All right. Well, in that case, we've run out of things to tell you. So that'll be the end of this one. And we'll be back on Tuesday, although probably in the afternoon instead of the morning, because I'm teaching in the morning. Well, hold on, hold on. I want to go over this article. I think it's go really good. Go ahead. Uh, so let's see. I quickly go over this. Um, the uh, hackers from uh, SolarWinds are now using Google Drive for their malware, which is something I've done before too. Uh, Google Drive turns out to be a really great way to distribute your malware. And so this is an article on TechCrunch Tech by Carly Page. Google and Drive so, does not do an antivirus test? It does, but if you are very clever about the way that you upload your viruses or the way that they're obfuscated, you can host stuff on there. Um, I use Google... Uh, I had to use Google stuff in the past to host a whole range of custom-made malware. And of course, we do know that the SolarWinds group uh, is capable of writing their own malware, as is, as is what they did when they injected the malware into SolarWinds. Um, so um, let me read from the article. Um, according to researchers at Palo Alto Networks, um, the uh, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service hacking unit, uh, cloaked URSA, Unit 42, APT29, Cozy Bear, uh, has incorporated Google Cloud storage services into its hacking campaigns to hide their malware and their activities. Uh, so basically what they did is they, uh, so they quote, uh, this is a new tactic for this actor and one that proves challenging to detect due to the ubiquitous nature of these services. Uh, when the use of trusted services is combined with encryption, as we see here, it becomes extremely difficult for organizations to detect malicious activities in connection to the campaign. So I guess another thing they're doing, in addition to writing their own custom malware, they're encrypting it. So there's no way that the uh, Google servers can detect that it is indeed malware unless they know ahead of time. So, Well, unless they can Could trigger be. on the decryptor like they would for Metasploit. Yeah, maybe. Um, Although I will say that if, if what they're doing is they're just having a uh, the 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 payload itself being encrypted on Google Drive, and then they just upload the decryptor onto people's computers, um, that I mean, there's nothing Google can really do at that point. Yep. So defense is hard. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, now I think we're done, and we'll be back on Tuesday.